This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. recent years, Israel has faced a critical problem. A certain NGOs funded by foreign countries have been accused of supporting terror and advocating for the destruction of Israel. Last week, the government, led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, introduced legislation aimed at preventing these NGOs from receiving tax reductions. The intention behind this move was to deter foreign countries from supporting Palestinian NGOs with questionable affiliations. However, the proposed law ignited an uproar among EU states, further highlighting the complex and sensitive nature of this issue and putting the legislation on ice. Amidst the landscape, NGO Monitor has emerged as a prominent initiative shedding light on the actions and influence of international NGOs in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Founded by Professor Gerald Steinberg, a distinguished political scientist, NGO Monitor aims to provide critical analysis and distribute reports on the work of these NGOs. By doing so, they seek to promote transparency and provide necessary context in an often complex and polarizing environment. Today, we are honored to have Professor Gerald Steinberg as our guest on the show with a background in political science and extensive experience as a consultant to the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Israeli National Security Council. Professor Steinberg is a leading authority on the subject. As the founder and president of NGO Monitor, he brings a wealth of knowledge and insights into the motivations and impact of NGOs working against Israel. Join us as we delve into this important topic and gain a deeper understanding of the complexities surrounding NGOs in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Thank you, and I'm honored to be here as well. Any uh, remarks on the... Yeah, I'll make a couple of comments okay. on the introduction. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thanks for the, all the nice words. I, did, I am guilty of having realized that uh, non-governmental <clears throat> organizations are, A, not always non-governmental. In fact, all the ones we're talking about today are not really governmental. Sometimes they're called gongo, sometimes they're called fongos, foreign-funded, foreign-government-funded. Um, and I, as an academic, began to realize that this was a, a serious issue needed to be studied, needed to be researched. The uh, introduction, in your introduction, you talked about uh, legislation. It wasn't a government move. It was one member of the Knesset, mm -hmm. and um, it was withdrawn. It was predictably withdrawn. It was not carefully thought out in the sense that the, the language that was used before it even got to the Ministerial Committee on Legislation, which has had to approve it and decided not even raise it, the language that was in the draft that was circulated would have affected hundreds, perhaps thousands of Israeli institutions that have nothing to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and all the controversial political issues. Uh, this is a much wider issue, and it also does reflect to, to the degree that Israel is dependent on foreign funding and very often foreign government funding, whether it's in hospitals, museums, other frameworks. And um, so it'll have to be the... the legislation which is probably not the best way to deal with this issue we can certainly talk about other ways of dealing with it uh has been withdrawn it will either have to be rewritten or the whole concept needs to be rethought mm. and i assume in the next uh whatever 45 minutes so that we're going to be talking about this we'll talk about a lot of different ways to approach this and why it's so important so it was it was a bad legislation well it was you. also because it wasn't even something that the government considered mm. it was one member of the knesset who's not a minister He's a Likud member. He is a right? Likud member, but in, in many ways it was a personal initiative. He, uh, if he, I, I think in general, if you're going to do legislation, you got especially if it's going to be controversial, you have to line up the different powers and assess what the odds are, who's going to be supporting you, who's going to be against you, what the issues are going to be, and then decide how to approach it strategically. Also, because failure often can set you back. It's not. It's not costless if you don't. If you don't get it past the, the goal whole line. issue, in fact, may have been of dealing with what is really unprecedented foreign government intervention through what's often called the NGO game uh, in Israel. It's unprecedented. There's no other that's unique. There's no other country in the world that gets subjected 
to the type of uh, manipulation that goes through these uh, political NGOs through European governments. And absolutely, you're right that what we have now is a situation where there was an initiative, uh, European governments pushed back, others pushed back and disappeared. And that, that is, there's a cost to that. So maybe tell us, like, give us a... a Give us like the the background, but give it to us maybe in a in a in a story in an example. Like, w- what's an European NGO that is super questionable that funds? Uh, uh, sorry, a European, European government country. that funds an NGO here in Israel that's super questionable. Can you? I'm going to give you a story or more than one story if you want in a minute. A lot of stories, but I'll just say that we're talking about an industry that there's first of all there's a worldwide industry that is largely not not subject to checks and balances. I won't say it's unregulated. It's regulated in a very narrow sense. But unlike uh, the, the marketplace, corporations, businesses where there's competition and where uh, investments and expenditures, everything that's public has to be reported on in great detail. And if you fail, you're out of the business. None of those criteria apply to the NGO industry. It's a multi hundreds of billions of dollars, pounds, euros around the world. And in the Israeli-Palestinian case, we're talking about at least 200, 250 million dollars, euros, of which close to maybe 170 million is funded by European governments. To some degree, occasionally a little bit US, a little bit Canadian, a little bit Australian, but primarily European. That's a large amount of money. And there's really no oversight a- annually. Annually, two hundred fifty million and one hundred and seventy million annually. Exactly, all these are annual numbers. That's okay. that's, that's, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it has a lot of you buy a lot of influence. You buy a lot of PR, and that's what we see in all these processes. Uh, some stories, and you'll tell me when you want to shift from stories to more analysis. But I'll tell you my own stories first. How did I get into this business, and and why why has it been the main focus of my activities for twenty years? First. I should say that I have been teaching international politics in a broad sense, but mostly in the realm of nuclear strategy and arms control and things like that. It's nothing to do with NGOs. I came to Israel after I finished my uh, doctorate at Cornell in the, in the uh, nuclear proliferation and related issues area. Started teaching in 82, 1982, so I've been doing this for over 40 years. And I hadn't touched NGOs for the first almost 20 years of that time. And then I went to some meetings, some conferences in Europe over around the late 1990s and around 2000. I went to one conference that really stuck out. It was on regulation of landmines. And uh, there was a worldwide initiative. And I was I invited, I was asked to go as the Israeli non-governmental expert. In other words, I wasn't a member of the Israeli government. I did some consulting for the Israeli government, but I was never, I never had any official position in the Israeli government. And I was invited because Israeli government, government officials tend to be very narrow in what they can talk about. If you're an academic, you can float around a bit. You can play with different ideas. This um, landmine convention was important because they were not just around in our area, but in all places where there, there have been wars over the last even 50, 60, 70 years, but particularly since the end of the uh, Cold War, during the Cold War, you had areas in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, all those areas, there were mines that were exploding that were had been left over from, from wars that had ended. And we had them, of course, in our region and all of our borders where mines were used in the Sinai, mines were used extensively in Golan, Israelis, Syrians, Egyptians, everybody was using mines in, in every other conflict. Uh, mine issues in the wars between Armenia and Azerbaijan. I could go through the entire world. And that was what this convention was designed to prevent the spread of mines around the world and also to come up with mechanisms for demining in areas where de- that are deconflicted. And Israel was considered to be an important player. The United States, the main powers in the United States, by that time it was uh, Russia, uh, China, the major powers did not agree to this, did not sign on, and also a number of countries that are involved in conflicts like Israel. I get to this conference in Geneva, which is um, basically run by non-governmental organizations. The Landmine Convention was an initiative of Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and a couple of groups. They got a Nobel Prize for it. And what do I see as I walk around the convention area, both in the UN and outside? A lot of booths handing out material. What were they handing out? Many of them were handing out flyers, 
some of them handed out uh, CDs or, or DVDs. I don't remember what we what technology we had in those days, uh, and they and also yearbooks. And the dominant theme was Israel is killing Palestinians because of landmines. And I realized that the main annual report of this organization, again run by Amnesty Human Rights Watch, was a posed fake photograph of a what was supposed to be a Palestinian child, and they had one of those triangular or sometimes rectangular signs that you see in the Golan that says um, Sakana or something like Zihirut, uh, Mokshim. Exactly. Beware, beware of the mines. mines. And it was clear that this was a posed picture. It wasn't something you could. He, the kid was, was in the, rags. What was the the kid? The kid was, was in rags in an area. Photo. Was to show that Israel was to. It was to highlight the terrible danger of landmines to children. But it was Israel as the negative poster child. Ah, it was just a, It was just a kid next to this sign. To yeah, show the sign, the but it was. And this is an illustration of the text. Show this is an illustration of the dangers of landmines that are used inappropriately, where there's no uh, consciousness. Of the uh, regarding the, the dangers that are posed to these innocent children, there's no context of a conflict. There's no context of, of this. I assume looked like it was probably posed somewhere in the the area of the Golan, maybe in the Galil, but um, the fact that it was posed, and they they put somebody in rags, a small child in rags, as the focus of this emotional. Uh, I went up and I asked the people, and that was I, it. Wasn't just that one yearbook issue. But it was at least 10 different booths where they were handing out material on Israeli war crimes. This was in 2000. War crimes and Israeli violations of international law, all sorts of other themes. Now, this was during what uh, the very beginning, uh, sometime at the end of 2000. So we had already had the events of October, end of September, early October, events of Rosh Hashanah, where there was very real fear that there would be a major conflict. There was a lot of bloodshed. Um, on his Palestinian side, it was it was before the Dolphinarium, but it was as the buildup was was growing of uh, a very intense conflict, and this just struck me as a very strange um, element of international politics that these themes were dominating what was supposed to be an expert conference on how to deal with the landmine issue in area, particularly in areas where the, it was not a simple process. And I wanted to know who are these organizations. What were they doing? How did they get access to the UN facilities? All sorts of questions. And of course, why was nobody questioning whether this was an appropriate use of funds and, and focus? And if it was all written up in newspapers. And, and we had newspapers in those days. And, and, and journalists were out there covering this, and it was all uh, very much pumped. And I came back, and I, I was disturbed by this. And I wrote to the people who had, I spoke to them. I wrote to them. It was Human Rights Watch in particular. And I got no serious answers. I particularly asked about the picture, what the source of it was, where it was taken. Because I can't, if you say, I'm sure it was posed, you've got to have some evidence. So I put it the other way around. What is the, uh, the basis for this? And I, they refused. They just stonewalled. And then there were a series of other things that happened very close to that. Uh, and... Um, the next big event was I was in Canada not too long. Quick afterwards. question though about the aren't the did is does Israel plant landmines? Did it plant landmines? Israel has used um, various kinds of um, I've forgotten what they're called. There's, there's a category of weapons um, that are used to prevent access of, of uh, tanks. And um, I was always under the impression that most of the landmines in the Golan were planted by the Syrians. Is that not true? Well, that's a, that's a good question, and I don't have a, an exact answer for that. It was about also demining. But no, Israel does use or had used okay. at the time landmines. For instance, if you, the Golan Heights, I don't get too much to the military aspects, but we have those um, various military bases that are sitting on uh, very close. As they remember, we're talking about when Syria was a real country and they had a serious military, and it was, uh, th there was always the threat of, of a major conflict. Mm -hmm. And certainly after 1973 and other times, you had to protect those various hilltops that were listening posts and observation posts, small forces. And there had been attacks. There had been small units, whether they were Syrians or Palestinians, that had uh, done some serious damage. There was also, I won't go into the whole other aspects of Lebanese border and, and kidnapping of soldiers and bodies, but landmines are a form of protection, which is why, the, of forces, which is why the United States, and it's not just landmines in a simple sense. Some of them are more sophisticated Soviet Union, Russia, China, again, uh, the United States, major powers that were involved in conflict did not saw that they, they this is just one example, but I just I want to bring it home. 
that saw this as a um, necessary part of, of warfare, of, of self-defense, all over NATO and other areas. I mean, the Palestinian organizations were handing out this material, groups like Al-Haq, which is a um, the, the first Palestinian human rights NGO, entirely funded by Europe. That was one of the first things I found, that Human Rights Watch is an American-based organization funded primarily by individual donors. But the 10 or so groups that were handing out these flyers with the, it wasn't just about landmines, then it became Israel as the major source of human rights violations, the suffering of the Palestinians. That was the major theme around that area of the UN where this issue was being discussed. And then I realized that these same groups hand out the same material every time in those days of the Human Rights Commission, now it's the Human Rights Council has a meeting, all sorts of other uh, opportunities to promote this image of Israel as Israelis are evil. They kill Palestinians for no reason whatsoever. There's no mention of terrorism, no mention of, of threats, no mention of history. And that's, I, I don't say red that flag. it was... It well, the red flag. It bothered you. me. Mm -hmm. It bothered me enough to start a correspondence and to begin to look at this. And so that was, and I realized that there were no academic, there was no academic research and nobody was writing papers doing research about what is the political role of what are supposed to be non-governmental organizations. And I had no idea that I would be doing this 20 years later hmm. at all. I didn't have any idea that we're talking about, we talked just now about uh, 200, uh, uh, $250 million or some other currency per year just focusing on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But there are other areas, much less so, but again, it's a, it's a huge industry. I had no idea how, it's like an archeological dig. You have one layer and then you do it and you see, oh, there's another layer, another layer. That, and that's what's happened to me in the last 20 years. So I could give you more stories where this was brought home, but that, that, that was one of the more um, focused moments. ones. Certainly, it took, a, it took another year. The Eureka moment was the Durban conference, the UN Durban conference on the Elim world conference on the elimination of racism, um, discrimination, and other forms of xenophobia. That's a UN uh -huh. mega thing. And of course, it talked about all places all around the world suffering from those things. Of course. It was, in yeah. fact, it was advertised as a, it was going to be the South, South Durban, South Africa, the celebration of the release of, not just the release of Nelson Mandela, but the transition, the end of apartheid, the defeat of, the, mm -hmm. of apartheid. And uh, that took place at the end of August 2001. But because I had this little itch or red flag of somewhere in between, I began to track what was going on and how this was the kidnapping process, the hijacking, sorry, I think that's a better term, how the NGOs were preparing to hijack that conference, which has had three, it was like a three-ring circus, three separate forums, fora. One was diplomats. One and then one was simultaneously. One was NGOs, and the other one was, was students. But I saw that the NGOs were planning, getting ready to primarily focus on Israel. And I came back from whatever I was in Canada at the time. This was again early mid, mid 2001. It probably was after the first mega um, terror attacks. The Dolphinarium, I don't remember what month that was, but there was there were a series of, of major terror attacks that started to take place, bus bombings, other examples. Nobody was discussing that in the human rights framework. They were discussing how terrible Israel was, and this was the theme. And there were more and more of these same NGOs that I saw in Geneva were doing this over and over and over again and preparing for this Durban conference. They brought 5,000 delegates to a stadium in Durban, South Africa for this NGO forum to approve by voice vote a, a final declaration that was almost entirely about Israel. There was no other country mentioned. Mm -hmm. It's called the Durban Declaration or the, something? Yeah, the, the final declaration of the Durban Conference. They were handing out their protocols, the Elders of Zion, so marching the final. on t-shirts. <laughs> the final declaration. The yeah, final but except that there were solutions. three other Durban Conferences afterwards that sort of reinforced, tried to but, reinforce this. Okay, but but trying to fast forward to this this day and age, or this the, uh, this era, um, 
because okay so NGOs spreading lies it's very bad uh, like spreading fake news and fake propaganda against Israel we don't like them that's horrendous but maybe we could live with that but we're talking about NGOs that actually do many worse things than that right we're talking about NGOs that have an enormous amount of power to set agendas it's not just okay we don't like Israel in fact the first response I get from Israeli foreign ministry back in those days was um shmum not important it's just the United Nations more declarations NGOs aren't important forget they just they didn't track it at all mm-hmm. there was nobody whose job was to track the implications of NGO campaigns fast forward to any year you want 2020 21-22-23 UN Human Rights Council meets four times a year plus emergency sessions at every meeting every one of those four standard meetings there is one dedicated agenda item to the terrible things that Israel is doing to the Palestinians at those meetings they vote on resolutions the resolutions one of the resolutions that was adopted led to the a, a boycott list a BDS list that one of the NGOs at Durban adopted a what they used against South Africa boycotts divestment sanction campaign part of that goes to businesses that are doing that are working in Israel banks if you boycott the banks like the Norwegian pension fund wants to do or you boycott Ben and Jerry's if you want to go to the other end of the spectrum or so it's all sorts of other um, business enterprises you single out Israel not any other area that's involved in a conflict not any other not not all the other examples only Israel and that does have that affects all of us how, how so if you've served in the Israeli military if an NGO now writes a report about you as they're trying to do and they are doing that claims that you are responsible for whether whatever service you're in it could be in the, the um, infantry you could be in the tanks you could be in the Air Force you could be running uh, uh, drones whatever that you are responsible for the death of an innocent Palestinian it is very possible now this is an NGO writing this report because they're the ones who have the all of the power not, no they don't have they made their own mandate up but the, the, the United Nations doesn't have that capability the International Criminal Court doesn't really have an independent capability mm-hmm. I'll give you the example of the Goldstone report in a minute but they could put together a report about you that could lead to an arrest warrant for any place you go particularly if it's in Europe you get off a plane but has this happened it's happened in a few instances. It, hap- it hasn't happened at the level of the simple soldier yet. But, for instance, Daron Almog, who is the uh, southern command, um, commander of the southern section, was told that if he gets off an El plane to land, after he'd left the military, he was going to raise funds for a project that he has of uh, a camp up in the north that is for um, children with various kinds of... Um, it's not down, something like okay, special needs. Special needs. He was going to raise money. He has a son who had that, and he was raising money. And he was told that if he gets off the El plane at Heathrow, he's going to be questioned by Scotland Yard. Now, he may not be arrested, but his picture will be taken. It'll be the front pages of all the newspapers in London and in the UK and Europe and probably around the world. Suspected Israeli war criminals questioned by Scotland Yard at uh, Heathrow Airport. He stayed on the plane. He was forewarned and, and turned around and went back. Sippy Livni, the minister at the time, she was justice minister. She was also a foreign minister at some point during one of the Gaza conflicts was also on that list. And I know people at lower levels and also. And Ehud Barak was also mentioned. Ehud Barak. There's, there is the, all of the commanders and top politicians were on mm-hmm. list at some point. Um, Bogi Alon, Moshe Vlayan, whatever. Yeah, Alon was on a list. Uh, there are others. Mm-hmm. But are, aren't there also NGOs that you monitor that that get funded uh, by Europe, by the Germans, who actually, you know, idolize terror or um, support terrorists, support the families of, of terrorists? Directly. Because we're talking about a big industry, there are different layers and different kinds. Palestinian NGOs who established very early close relationship with Europeans turns out that's one of the things that when you start to look at this at the details we began to see a pattern 
what emerged was a group of about 13 and probably more NGOs, non-governmental organizations, funded Palestinian groups, where you have large numbers of officials, not one or two, who are active in the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is a terrorist organization as listed with all sorts of prohibitions, not only in Israel, but in the United States, in Canada, and, and the European Union. But they have a NGO network. Mm-hmm. So the Europeans say these are two completely unrelated issues. And we don't see any reason not to continue our support. A number of So these that's a funnel for, for whitewashing money? For well, what we know about, I'll give you some examples of what we know. And a lot of things we don't know. Mm-hmm. But one of the examples that we know about is that in August of 2019, a young Israeli, 17-year-old, named Rina Schnerb, with her father and her brother, were in one of the Mayana, one of the springs uh, not too far from Jerusalem, and a remote bomb was set up, set off. Rina was killed, and her father and brother were injured. Uh, a number of Palestinians were arrested. Some have been put on trial. Uh, the top people from that cell were officials of a Dutch, largely Dutch, but also EU-funded NGO. Mm. And then we see the pattern that there are also other parts of the PFLP network which are around these 13 different NGOs. So the Palestinians are using the NGOs to set up jobs for their... Not just jobs, but also cover. Mm-hmm. I'm going to the uh, Geneva. I'm going to yeah, speak in course, the United Nations as a human rights activist. Mm-hmm. Shaman Jabarin, the head of Al-Khak since around 2000, who I think probably had the idea... Of, of, or he didn't have the original, the only idea, but he was the one who really developed it broadly. And so he, was, he served time in an Israeli jail as a recruiter, as an activist, as a member of the PFLP. He is the head of the top Palestinian, a highly respected, and I put that in quotes, Palestinian NGO named Al-Khak, which gets millions of euros from European governments every year which goes to the International Criminal Court and the UN Human Rights Council and sits down with the prosecutors and the diplomats of European governments and others and produces the next set of accusations and allegations against Israel. On the one hand, as the Israeli court at some point, the high court, uh, declared at one point when the Israeli government would not let him travel to accept a human rights award in Europe, the high court ruled that he is a, the evidence shows that he is a human rights activist by day and a terrorist by night. Like Batman, put, but in bizarre sort of the, world. Yes. You put your head around that. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't change the European policy relationship with that. I, I want to add a couple just. To, uh, what, what does that mean uh, by night? What, again, what organization? That he has, he? he wears two hats. No, but, no I know. But so what, one what is PFLP. Ah, PFLP. Okay. And the other one is, uh, is human rights. But then there's world. also. Because and, and there are, as I said, there's just, there are there's dozens of such people. There's another leg to this chair, which is the Israeli NGOs. The Israeli, there are Israeli NGOs. The most famous one is the New Israel Fund. But there are others that fund and support um culture and also actions that help terrorists protect terrorists at court um fund uh, theater uh, shows and and movies that support terror and 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 strive to eliminate us that statement sorry how accurate is that statement it's a little bit too general too broad okay there are organizations israeli organizations about 25 of them they get money every year all of their money from either the New Israel Fund, from a combination of the New Israel Fund and European governments. A little bit, I should say there, some of them get money also from other sources, but the majority of their money. The New Israel Fund is, has supports dozens or tens of, I think they, up their history, they've supported at least 200 Israeli organizations. And some of them do sheltered for battered women, Ethiopians, all sorts of other social activities. But that core group, Breaking the Silence, B'Tselem, Yesh Din, uh, Hamoked, I, I can name most of them, and in many cases the head of one becomes the head of the other one. They do play musical chairs. They provide the Israeli end of the 
evidentiary chain, let's say, the accusations, the allegations, it makes it kosher. It's not just Palestinian group. It's not just Amnesty International with its anti-Semites. It's not just Human Rights Watch with its own um, obsessive anti-Israel people. But this is these are Israeli human rights organizations. Mm-hmm. And why would Israelis say things that weren't right? They're incorrect. So that is the part of the New Israel Fund. And the New Israel is, Fund itself gets its money from? Of course, from Europe, also from America. Slow down. The New Israel Fund is primarily an American organization. Mm -hmm. It's in some ways, it's a government in exile. It was founded after the Likud won the 1977 elections, and Menachem Begin became prime minister. Two years later, this new Israel. We're going to not the old Israel, but we're going to have a new Israel, a a different Israel, a liberal, progressive Israel, largely based on American money. They have branches in uh, fundraising branches in in Switzerland, in Germany, in the UK, in Australia, Canada, but it's largely an American organization. American Jews with the old guard of the uh, no longer very attractive to Israeli voters part of the Israeli left, so that's. it's Avodah, it's uh, Meretz. Is they George founded Soros, this. Uh, sorry for being. Soros uh, is also part of this framework. Elon masking here, but uh. <laughs> no, Soros is part of this. Mm-hmm. But there are also they have events where they'll have a few hundred people come or um, to their to their uh, I was going to say parties, but their their <laughs> their big dinners, their gala dinners. It's a social thing. They're based largely on the two coasts, largely in California and in, in the New York area. And I'll just tell you on the side. It's a very lucrative business to it, it, hate on us. Well, they say they are sort of saving Israel from itself. Uh-huh. And since the Israeli voters aren't smart enough to do that, then we're going to f- use these NGOs. So it's a broad range of issues. It's also an issues against uh, Haredim, against other groups within the Israeli society. That uh, So they're trying to remake... Israel in the American liberal democratic image. That's my summary, along with some of their Israeli allies. So uh, Avram Borg is a major figure in this, uh, among others. And then there, there are a group of Israelis, but it's American money and directed in combination by these Israelis and Americans. But it's American citizen money. It's American private money. It's, it's American, American private money. They okay. have gotten some grants from the European Union which at first they denied, and that was part of our research. Nobody had researched this till we started to dig into it. They do file, every year they have to file uh, there as an American organization. They have to file there with the Internal Revenue Service a very detailed financial report. What's interesting, another interesting part about the NIF, is that they are not in any way registered in Israel. Here's an organization with an annual budget of over 30 million US dollars. Again, we're talking about big bucks of which a significant amount goes to these organizations that are out there saying, talking about Jewish supremacy and apartheid and other allegations, war crimes, and making it kosher because they're Jewish and they're Israeli. And so the um, process by which this allocation takes place is entirely secret. We know they have to file the, the report so we know where the money goes, more or less, but the process by which they make these decisions is, is largely hidden. And then what they've been very clever in doing over the last 20 years is that more, much more money comes from European governments to these same organizations than comes from the NIF. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's a, double funding. It's more, yeah. Double it's, dipping. But it, it, it's, it's <laughs> sort of double dipping. higher proportion comes But from now the, it's more and more. There's some NIF organizations that get 90 or even 100% of their funding from European governments. I think Human Rights Defenders is one of those organizations. Now, what would happen, it. just for a, a thought experiment, if me and Eitan would open an NGO in Germany that basically says that. Mm, let's say that it's the Muslims right to Muslims have the right the Muslim immigrants in Germany have the right uh, to control to take over Germany could I do that I don't know the specifics in the case of each country in other words legally what the red lines are if you tell me that you wanted to found an NGO you wouldn't do it but an NGO that was denying that the Holocaust ever took place under German law that would probably be that would be illegal Mm mm-hmm on the other aspects, um, it, I don't know what the specific legal aspects are, but it's very easy to create an NGO. 
And it's easy to get money from the government. If you were to say, look, I want to foster dialogue between Muslims and non-Muslims and Muslim immigrants from all these countries that Germany recently took in, you could easily get a significant sum of money and probably nobody was going to question what you do with that money other than to check that you don't put it in your own pocket. That the Germans are good at. So I want to bring it back back home for a second. And I'm wondering, in Israel, what, what's the problem that there is that, um, that an NGO might support an organization that speaks out against uh, Israeli military, uh, that, that claims that the Israeli military commits war crimes? Like what's problem? As long as, they're, again, they're not funding directly terrorism, which you mentioned that there are some questionable NGOs that might, in ways that we don't know yet, be directing money in some indirect or direct way to people who are affiliated with terrorist organizations. I'm saying as long as they're funding organizations like B'Tselem or uh, uh, Breaking the Silence, what's the problem with, uh, with an NGO you know, speaking out against the Israeli military. I'm going to go just one point about the Palestinian. Other than the fact group. that it's not patriotic and whatever, but I'm saying. On the terrorism know. issue, yeah. when you have 70 or more individuals who are getting their salaries, their benefits, whatever it is paid for, even if you don't trace all of them to terrorist acts, but they are members of a terrorist organization, and as I pointed out, some of them have been traced directly, and there have been a couple of people who signed plea bargains that were arrested for funneling money in one group called the uh, Health Workers, um, HWC Health Workers Con- Consortium or something like that, where they were committee, and they were um, they were arrested, uh, raised money from sp- Spanish government in particular, confessed, got a light sentence, and there was real evidence there that that money taken from Spanish government, European governments, was used to finance directly terror Organization. So there yeah. are some, it's more than just rumors and vague. Okay. Yeah. No. So, so well, back I to think the we can groups. all agree that those okay, guys and that money goes that's into one, a bucket okay. of problematic that's we need to solve. Okay. So yeah. the Israeli organizations fit in there. there there's a, um, I was going to say a, an echo chamber, but uh, it's uh, more than that, of, of NGOs that gather, that, that promote a soft power warfare strategy, which is very 21st century. Human rights, uh, one of the people that I learned a great deal about this from was uh, Professor Erwin Kotler, who was the Attorney General of Canada, was at, uh, I think he was one of the heads of the Canadian delegation at, at Durban, and as a human, he taught international law and human rights, and for he said that human rights is the religion of the 21st century, and religions have priests, high priests, and they have a set of beliefs that you're not allowed to question. You don't need to find evidence if... Somebody says, one of these priestly organizations says, you are committing war crimes, and it has lots of consequences. It's not only that you might be fine that there's an arrest warrant for you. I know of at least one case, I won't mention his name, but one relatively low-level official uh, who, uh, it wasn't even in a combat unit, who was told that if he goes to one of those countries, he will be arrested, or he, he was questioned. He was more than that. He was questioned at the airport with his family about this allegation that was submitted by an NGO. This has real life consequences. Israelis are constantly being demonized. Israelis as individuals, as a community, as a country. And if your goal is, if the Palestinian goal, and it's much broader than Palestinians, is to erase Israel from the map, no longer will a country exist that is in the framework of Zionism, a um, nation-state of the Jewish people. It could be a state for all of its citizens. It could be a majoritarian Palestine, whatever it is. If that is the consequence, one of the major consequences, or Israeli banks not being able to function on the international market, we have other issues in our country that are, uh, may, may are, we're warned may hamper our uh, economic growth, but not allowing Israeli banks access to international frameworks could be very, very damaging to all of us. So that is that's what we're talking about. Those are the goals of the broad movement. But so I, I think I think to answer your question, Eitan, yeah. I don't think like you should make those NGOs, Israeli NGOs, illegal, but why do we need those NGOs they enjoy tax reductions? Right? So at, at the very least, 
why should we give those NGOs tax So now reduction? we're getting to the headlines, today's, yeah. today's stories. What, and this is an issue. How do you deal with the Israeli NGOs, with the European funding, with the Palestinians, and a policy level? By the way, level? is UNRWA an NGO no. considered? No. UN okay. organizations are not NGOs. Okay. Okay. NGOs are supposed to be non-governmental organizations, civil society. That's a whole issue, by the way, in and of itself. Mm -hmm. What is the rationale, the legitimacy of European governments picking a group of non-governmental organizations and saying these are now, we're going to help give them most of their money? And how does that, that's, mm -hmm. that's part of the problem. It was not, first of all, it was under the radar. Nobody in the Israeli government paid much attention to this until the Goldstone Report and then the Navi Marmara affair, 2009-2010. When Judge Richard Goldstone, who had served on various international tribunals, issued a report under the auspices of the UN Human Rights Council saying Israel had committed war crimes, recommended that unless Israel were to do A, B, and C, that he would recommend that the to that the UN Security Council then go to the International Criminal Court. Israel is not a member of the Criminal Court, but if the Security Council were to recommend opening up of cases, that would open the door. And then Israeli military officials began to pay attention. The Defense Department, the head of the army, I had many conversations back in 2009, 2010, including with Richard Goldstone, who said, oh, it turns out I didn't really know the details that's in my report. He didn't write his own report. He felt, he just, it was, you realize that the whole thing is, is I'll use the term carefully, facade. a farce, a facade. And it's very political. It's all political. So what Israeli organizations do is they give it legitimacy. How do you deal with that? My first approach that I, I think has not yet been done and needs to be done is much more intense engagement dialogue, all those nice terms, confrontation with the European funders. The New Israel Fund can give money to anybody that they want as long as they don't violate Israeli law. I may not like it. I may think that it's not legitimate. I want their donors to get a better idea and not their PR of what they actually do with the money because I think a lot of those donors, I've had these conversations, some of the donors have taken it seriously, pulled their money, others not. But it's not illegal. I think they should be forced to register as a structure, the non-profit, non-governmental non structure in Israel and submit their reports to the Israelis, not just to the Americans. That's another aspect. But the European money, which is the big money, which is why this proposed law raised such an outcry. It's not the first time. This is the fourth or fifth time since around 2011 or 12 that various legislative initiatives have been tried. Whether it's to tax them, there was, the previous one was that any European or foreign government-funded NGO that goes to the Knesset, to a committee or to lobby or before a court would have to wear a special colored tag. Well, that didn't go over very well at all. It would, these are they're almost gimmicks to try. Let's take this seriously. Every European government that provides funding, and we're talking about 15 different governments plus the EU, from Finland in the north to Spain and Italy in the south, has an embassy in Israel, has it. A, an ambassador. I have had many conversations with them, and occasionally they have come to the Knesset to discuss and defend their government's policies, but there's been no consistency. What I would recommend, if I was asked by uh, a, min uh, min a minister or a member of the Knesset, is to hold hearings, to have a committee session, not one, but a series, 15 different sessions with 15 different ambassadors where the information that's all available on NGO Monitor's website, all from open sources, all you got to do is look. You got to know how to look and where to look. But to go in, here's the German ambassador coming to a meeting of the Knesset where the 15 million euros that Germany, we know about, gives to Israeli and Palestinian NGOs, including many of the ones we've talked about on both the Palestinian and Israeli side, is asked to explain how his government makes this decision. And he will probably say, he will read some sort of a statement about how this is in the best interest and it's civil society and it's democracy without answering the question because he doesn't know. Okay. So what's the stick? So what, 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 gives, what, what good does that do? Then what happens is that it gets headlines in the German media. And members of parliament in Germany from a pretty broad section of, of not, except for the far left, 
And we've seen this in various countries, a little bit in Germany, but I think it needs to be done a lot more. Germany's different because we're all worried about submarines and all sorts of vetoing resolutions, and Germany is our best friend. But I think it, this is a bigger problem, but other people think differently, which is their privilege in the foreign ministry. But Norway or Switzerland or Belgium, Bring the ask the or, sweet, or Spain. I go through the list, right? We go up and down the and map. But what will happen in there? Then members of parliament will start to ask questions. Why are we spending our money? And we've seen this. Why is taxpayer money going to these Israeli and Palestinian organizations? And what our people are, are suffering? We don't have enough money. Sweden just cut its foreign aid budget by a huge amount. Got a different government in it'll it, maybe it'll it'll surface to the news for a day or two headlines and then it'll kind of why dissipate. do we why not do why not why not uh i mean i don't to me it seems a bit a bit of a stretch why not simply go after illegal actions like funding terrorism and funding terrorist organizations yeah terror, the, 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 the israeli and then, and then what's the problem with the rest of the money that's, that's the what Palestinian i'm trying to money understand. but that's not the israeli the israeli ngos so what we're talking about is european governmental money basically european taxpayer dollars or taxpayer euros being funneled to israeli ngos and i'm wondering what i'm asking is what's the problem the problem is that for example one of the problems is some of those ngos have lawyers and for example if all look, of them have all lawyers. of them have lawyers and a lot of not lawyers. only do they and they go to the supreme court with anything with anything for example okay. now it's not illegal Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. So it's I'm not, saying, so yeah. you're trying to solve the problem well, by putting a bandaid on it. But I get there's a problem that NGOs with with the questionable agendas can just to go to the the Supreme Court and and submit. Okay, so a, but why why like why go after the funding of? Uh, I'm trying to understand what's the problem that, okay. that breaking the silence gets a million dollars a year to to, to or spew five lies or whatever it is to spew lies. To, to me, it sounds like an attack on free speech. For a second. The issue of, no, I think that those are very legitimate concerns. And you have to really think about all of the implications because if you don't, then it ends up actually making the problem worse because then you get labeled as. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, interfering with free speech and all of that. But if you're a victim of a terror attack, you're a family's, uh, family member, your daughter was killed in a bus bombing at Sparrow Pizza in, it was 2001, 2002. Yeah, and the killer is up for being released as part of a prisoner deal, and so and the NGOs have the money to go and make her case. They have hundreds of lawyers. I can give you thousands of examples. That's their full-time job, funded by primarily European governments. But what's illegitimate about it is it's, what Ethan asks. It's an unfair, uneven, unbalancing. The family of the terror victims. They don't have access to that kind of funding. But that's not they Europe's don't fault. To, that's Europe not Europe's picked, fault. Europe picked its side. Yeah. It okay. is not done. This There is no, nothing like what Europeans, Europeans came up with this idea, was helped by the Palestinians and the Israelis, that NGOs are a means of ending the Israeli-Palestinian conflict by weakening Israel and strengthening the Palestinians. How do you do that? One of the ways you do that is all the things we're describing. And they call it through civil society. But it's really political warfare. Now, is that illegal? It's very hard to define, as we've seen, what makes it illegal. Is it unfair? Yes. It's very unfair. And that's what I would emphasize. Now, I agree with you that it is not, there's no guarantee this is going to work. But European fairness is an issue. They, they claim to be promoting these kinds of moral principles. And if it's extremely imbalanced and you're helping the bad guys and you start to have to make up excuses for why you're doing this and not doing it anywhere else, that becomes more more difficult to do. But you don't have to... You, you, you can just cut their tax reduction benefits. Why? Why are they not but allowed to be an NGO like any but other that's, NGO? But you're not hurting free speech by doing it. No, but, I don't, no, but why, why, why are you they, cutting they, their tax benefits and not another NGO's tax Because benefits? I don't want to give tax benefits to NGO's that uh, strive funded to... funded by... No, that strive to, to eliminate the Jewish state. No, but I don't understand. You can't just say that. You can't why? just... Because so, then you're meddling with free speech. No! Yes, I you are. What is, the, what is no, the definition... No, What is I'm the not. definition of trying and to... And who decides? Yeah, what is the definition of you're meddling with the future of the Jewish state? What is the definition? Well, if they support organizations that promote uh, terror or that promote... What, Israel, by I, speech? 
by speech. Okay, so but then I'm not you're saying, getting into no, speech. No, because I'm not saying don't allow them to. I'm only saying, yeah, we got to go. No, I want to okay. make one jump in quickly. Yeah. Because I think this is you're getting to the essence of the issue and how difficult it is to resolve it. Yeah. But the question, one of the issues that came up, and it has to do with the judicial reform, and it's been addressed, is by what right does an NGO uh, able to represent Palestinian prisoner because he doesn't have a cell phone or whatever it is, whatever the issue is. Mm -hmm. What gives standing to a non-governmental organization and particularly one that's funded by a foreign government? That's a much more narrow focus, but I think in many ways it's, it's more legitimate to look at. Standing, that didn't, there was no such standing until the, the late 70s. And then the NGOs rushed in. It was a combination of the broader approach, the legal approach of Aaron Barak, and also the at the same time the opening up of, st of st standing for NGOs, which took great advantage, and all of that is funded by European governments. Literally, there are hundreds. All, all of I'm cases. saying is, I I, I believe Final in words. a fair a fair game. So, if you don't want to allow foreign governments to fund NGOs, then just say that you can't have funding by foreign governments. Mm -hmm. But then you said that was problematic, right? Because it would uh, impact and tons of NGOs across the across the board. So uh, you know, it's like either you say that or you say that, you know. And then and then the standing issue, I agree. We should stop the whole idea of NGOs being able to approach the Supreme Court, you know. Individuals who have a legitimate grievance <laughs> go Absolutely. to the court, but an NGO yeah. representing a whole class of people, that's a whole other. Yeah, 100%. NGO Monitor is a website in English. You can go and check Hebrew. it out and Hebrew. Go check it out. Highly recommended. I used it. You know, you can use it to get amazing information. And Professor, thank you so much for coming. You have to rush to the train. Uh, thank you so much. I and appreciate you the donations. We NGO do accept. Monitor. We are okay. we are an Israeli amuta, uh -huh. not not from European government. <laughs> no, we we are very makpid. What's the English word for that? We're, we're uh, very strict. 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 Yeah. We do not accept any money from the Israeli government in any form, or European governments, or the or wow. any other government. So yeah. guys, because we want to maintain our independence, we are go, really an NGO. Please go to ngomonitor.com. Is that the website? Dot org. Dot org. With a dash between the NGO and the monitor. Okay. But you'll yeah, find it has to be said that you, what you guys are doing is is really God's work because you're, yeah. you're, you're providing a lot of information what these NGOs. And regardless of legislation, I think that, you know, information and transparency is Take it out from important. under the ground and put it up on the table for everybody to see. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for a very stimulating conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, guys. See you on the next one.